Uh, we finished up looking just at the fact that in, uh, in regard to the Word of God, it continued growing, right? You had Herod. We didn't, in first service, we didn't talk so much about Herod's death. We didn't have time. Uh, but you have the, the interaction uh, with Peter and with the people that he goes to, uh, not necessarily find comfort in per se, perhaps, but people that he goes to speak with and to get prayer with. Remember, he ends up at John Mark's mom's house, uh, Mary. And we talked about Mary and her ministry to the church, and what a, an opportunity it was and how she risked everything to be available uh, to the work in that sense. Um, we talked about how uh, we can be patient with one another, how Peter needed to be patient with Rhoda and, and the people that were speaking to Rhoda. You know, here the, they're, they're in a prayer meeting praying for a miracle to happen with Peter, and the, the miracle happens, and the response is, there's no way that that miracle actually happened, right? I mean, it's, just, it's, it's comical because it's so much oftentimes like us where we're saying, Lord, you could do this great thing. Lord, I'm trusting you. I will, I'm asking you to do this great thing. And then it looks like this great thing is happening. And we're like, no, no. Uh, and their excuses were, it's his angel, which, again, you think of that in, in context of uh, what we believe the Bible to say. And, and what they're saying is these are, these are New Testament, first century church people, right? We sometimes have this nostalgic idea, and our eyes roll back in our head, and we're like, the first century church was perfect, and they had everything right. Well, this particular first century church here in Antioch, their doctrine was that people had individual angels, which probably is so, and that they looked like them. They're like twins. And so the reason that Rhoda saw Peter wasn't that she saw Peter. She heard and saw Peter's twin, angel. And that's who it actually is. So, I mean, this is weirdness, right? And so Peter had to be patient with them. Uh, they needed to be patient with Rhoda. Rhoda needed to be patient. Everybody just needed to be patient with one another, kind to one another, helping one another. And then uh, the second part of that was Herod's death, and we looked into that historically. Uh, there's a, a pretty cool uh, writing from uh, Josephus, who, uh, Flavius Josephus, who was a historian, and he records Herod's death and how it went down. And so we, we talked about that. And just the idea of, of why, because Herod is slain because the people praise him as a god, right? He puts on this, uh, Her, uh, Flavius Josephus said he had put on a, a polished, uh, think of it like, I don't know if you've ever seen any like fantasy movies or uh, gladiator or anything like that, or anybody with Roman soldiers, but it's, uh, it was like ringlets. So imagine like rings, not really rings, but discs like this of silver that were all sewn into one kind of chest plate over his chest and stomach, and it was polished. And what happened was, uh, Josephus tells us, the sun came through where he was speaking, and it radiated this crazy light on everyone, and they started crying out, as the Bible tells us, it's a God and not a man. And so Herod ends up uh, receiving that praise, and by Herod's testimony, um, Josephus records that Herod said that he saw, and uh, that Herod said that he saw an uh, a uh, an owl, and this owl at one point. Now this is Josephus talking about Herod's testimony, so this is extra biblical. But according to Herod's testimony, he sees this owl. And the owl had brought him good news at one point, and now he's bringing bad news. And he knew right then, he was convicted right then, that he had accepted praise as a god, and he suffers this radical pain in his gut. And he actually dies five days later through a lot of pain. And so we ask the question, why is it so important? Because God says, Luke tells us through the Holy Spirit, that he slew Herod because Herod was 
usurping God's glory. And so you kind of have to ask the question, why is God so protective about His glory? Is He, is he just self-absorbed? Is it like a, an athlete that might feel threatened by a, an athlete that's better? Uh, is it just that He's macho? Like, Why is it so important to God that His glory is not claimed by another, if it's not ego or id or something like that? And the reality is it lies in the fact that God's glory, and glory means uh, good opinion or weightiness, like the weight of a good opinion, essentially. So if His glory is usurped by another, that's actually a detriment to all humankind. Because who God is, and our opinion of who He is, and what He's capable of, ultimately determines how we live our lives. So if someone usurps that authority from God, or that glory from God, what it does is it, it minimizes others' chances of, of, of seeing who He is. That's why it's so important. It's not that God needs to be patted on the back. Like, hey, you're a great God. We really appreciate you. you know, it's not that worship is, is that, that God needs his ego stroked or something like that. It's the idea that he is revealing himself, and when we take it to ourselves or someone else takes that to themselves, it diminishes God. And unfortunately, it draws people away. Maybe you've seen that in a church that you've gone to or in your life where someone kind of like, yeah, I am a, I'm a prophet. I am a prophet. And what I say is really good. And you should come to my house and hear what I have to say because I'm a prophet. And that's usurping God's glory. Or somebody who, who uses a, a spiritual gift poorly and says, yes, that's right. I am amazing at whatever it might be. You should be appreciative of this. You know, it, it brings people after ourselves, which typically ends in heartbreak and bitterness, to be honest. So there's a couple other ways it can turn out. But that's, that's what we looked at last week. So in this week, we have some exciting stuff, I think. And there in Acts chapter 13... He says, and we're just going to cover a short uh, set of verses here. It says, now there were in the church, oh, I'm sorry, let me read verse 25 just for some context, uh, chapter 12, 25. And Barnabas and Saul returned from Jerusalem when they had completed their service, bringing with them John Mark, whose other name was, uh, bring John, whose other name was Mark. So remember, they had brought money uh, to the people in Jerusalem. And so now they've come back, so they're back in Antioch. Verse 13 or chapter 13. Now there were in the church at Antioch prophets and teachers, Barnabas, Simon, who is called Niger, Lucius of Cyrene, Menaean, a lifelong friend of Herod, the Tetrarch, that's Herod Antipas, and Saul. While they were worshiping the Lord and fasting, the Holy Spirit said, set apart for me Barnabas and Saul for the work to which I have called them. And after fasting and praying, they laid their hands on them and they sent them off. And this is really a packed set of verses. And I think without trying to be dramatic or too crazy or something like that, the reality is that as Christians, and I think most of us, and maybe you could extend that to the world in, in a more generalized sense, but as Christians, this event, I think, is what we all want in our lives, what we're all seeking for in the daily. And it's a fairly profound idea. The Holy Spirit said... And you think about that for a second. The Holy Spirit said, a direct communication from God to human beings, and it was really great. This is what I want. And I think for many of us, this is the event that we so long for. Every morning, if we get up and have a devotion, every evening, if we spend a little time in the Word, uh, when we're coming to church on Sunday morning, you know, my guess is you're coming here not because you want free coffee, but you're hoping to hear something from God. What is it that you have for me? What do you want me to do? Or can you please comfort me because this is going on in my life? You know, this, this idea 
that Christianity is, 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 is one of the foundations that God speaks to individuals. So when we have a, just a, such a clear example here, it's, it's worth, I think, noting how it happened. Now, my goal is not to make a formula. In other words, like, there's a lot of good books out there, but it's, if you do this, and then you do this, and then you do this, then this will happen, right? If you donate money, then this will happen. If you pray the, pray, pray the prayer of Jabez, then this will happen. If you, you know, whatever, and then we kind of make these equations. And those things, I'm not minimizing those things per se. I'm just saying I don't think that they always work every time. That there's some way that you just do this thing, and it's like a genie. Like you whip out your prayer of Jabez, and you're like, Lord, expand my borders. Lord, expand my borders. And you're rubbing this magical lamp because Jesus is going to pop out and be like, here's all this blessing because you prayed the prayer of Jabez. That's not really, I don't think that's how the Lord works. I think he answers and he gives what's good for us. So we're not trying to make a, a, a formula here of some sort of guarantee of what God's going to do in our lives. But I think what we want to do here is observe what these people did and how they made themselves available, and then at some point God spoke to them. Does that make sense? I think that uh, when we look at this example, it's also noteworthy, noteworthy that these are that, you know, the book of Acts spans somewhere between 20 and 30 years. Right? That's a long time. So, and I say that not to minimize that God wants to have input into your life, but sometimes we can read these big events, and we, in our minds we go, like, this was like every day. That every day this was happening or something like that. Am I saying it can't happen every day? No, I'm not. I'm saying that I think that the average person's experience, the average Christian seeking Jesus' experience, is they have times of great revelation where the Lord reveals incredible things and you're humbled and you walk before Him and you, and, and you have this amazing revelation in your life. And then there's some times where the Lord seems to be reserved. Even David, over and over again in the Psalms, cries out, Lord, speak to me. Lord, where are you? And I think the Lord strategically sometimes just dumps revelation upon us of what He's doing and who He is and who we are, and sometimes He holds out and gives little peaks and different things like that of who He is because He knows what's good for us. So I don't want us to kind of look at this and go, okay, tomorrow morning I'm going to be praying and every day this... That may happen, but the goal is instead so that we can be ready every single day to hear what God wants to do in our lives. Sometimes he may want us to do what he told us to do the day before, and he need not repeat himself. Sometimes he's calling us to work in our lives, and we just haven't moved forward in what he's already called us to, or we don't like it. And we're, then we're asking him, Lord, show me what you want. And he's like, I said what I want. So in this, in this passage here, first and foremost, we have a list of names. So who are these people? It says, now there were in the church in, at Antioch, prophets and teachers. So these specific people, it doesn't mean that these are the only people here. It doesn't mean that these are the only people that hear God's voice. It's just saying that these particular people were walking in the callings that God had for them as prophets and teachers, people that were speaking God's word in an appropriate time, in an appropriate way, and people that were teaching the, the, the doctrines uh, and dogmas of the Christian faith, right? That's who these people are. So you have Barnabas, Simeon, who is called Niger, Lucius of Cyrene, Menaean, a lifelong friend of Herod, the Tetrarch, and Saul. Think about this. Barnabas is a Jew from Cyprus. We know him all the way back from Acts chapter 4, right? His real name is Joseph, and Barnabas is a nickname for him that the, the 
that the apostles gave him, that the, the guys there at the church of Jerusalem gave him, the son of encouragement. So he's a Jewish, he's a Levite, he's from Cyprus. You have Simeon. This guy is also a Jew, but the interesting thing is Niger is a Latin name. It wouldn't fly in our society today, but his nickname is literally dark or black. So due to the fact that he has a Latin name, nickname, naming him Niger, it probably points to the fact that he is in Roman and Roman circles because Jews don't give Latin nicknames. Does that make sense? Who uses Latin? Rome uses Latin. That's who uses Latin. So it's, this guy, uh, uh, Simeon, is some sort of uh, Roman, he, you know, he's bumping around in, Nor in Roman society, so much so that he has a nickname, everybody knows him in this Latin name as Niger. So obviously, uh, with the nickname, it makes sense that he was probably a darker-skinned individual. Lucius, he's from Cyrene, that's northern Africa. Um, that, that's, he, you know, again, from a completely different place, from across the the, uh, not the Reds, the Mediterranean Sea and farther south. Uh, Menaean, this is actually interesting, so he's a friend of Herod Antipas, uh, Antipas. Remember, Antipas is the guy who killed John the Baptist, and he's the guy that shamed Jesus at his trial. When Jesus comes to visit Herod, and Herod kind of makes fun of him, says, give me a miracle, all this kind of stuff, and then makes fun of him and sends him away, that's Herod. So this guy Menaean, is a, he grew up with, he's a good friend of Herod Antipas. And evidently, when Herod saw Jesus, he you know, goes the other direction, mocks him, and, and gets rid of him. And this guy ends up believing in Jesus. And because of our, you know, our, and then you have Saul, uh, who's a, a trained, was trained formally in rabbinical schools, right? And also later on, it receives divine, uh, uh, divine revelation from Jesus himself. So you kind of have these ragtag set of people. These people don't have anything in common outside of Christ. They're not, they're not going to roll in the same um, uh, circles of people, are they? Especially this guy, Manan, or even the, the North African guy. Think about this. This guy is like buddies with Herod. And he's now in this a gifted individual that God has called to be with these group of people that are now praying together and... Manan would be canceled in our culture because he was with Herod. He would have no chance. His history would literally preclude him from doing anything if they looked at people's histories. And that's becoming more and more of a thing. I'm not, I'm not here to make a big statement about culture or something like that, but more and more we're kind of moving to this place where if anybody has ever done something that was questionable in their life or said something that was... Uh, not correct or rude or had the wrong mindset, that that person is now a bad person and has no voice or no anything in anything in any way. And we, I think we just have to be careful because we're seeing where that's leading us, right? I hope we can all see as, as, a, as, a, as a nation, whether, whatever side we're on on things, as a nation, that idea is leading us to destruction and leading us to separation where, where there's a disunity. You know, you said this. I, saw, I read an article the other day and watched a commentary on people that were trashing John Wayne. Do I think John Wayne was like the best man that ever lived? I don't know, because I don't know John Wayne. He probably doesn't compare to Jesus, but I don't know him personally. I don't know anything about him. But he was a dude that just did movies, and movies that were minus sex, minus radical gore, you know, they were movies. Could you find things that are wrong with them? Yeah, I'm sure you could. 
But he had made some comments uh, and, and about basically roles of men and women, and now he's canceled. And he's, he's, he's garbage. He's a trash human being. And, and, and all this, we should never watch any of his movies, and we should never listen to anything he, see, he says. We should never anything, right? He's done. And that's, that's where, so the point I'm making is we have to be able to, as the church, move beyond people's past. We have to be able to move beyond, because that's what we need, isn't it? Is there anybody here that would like their history just kind of broadcast everything they've done and said, and we just put it up on the big screen, everything they've ever said to their wife, everything they've ever said to their husband, everything they'd ever, in any place, does any, do any of us want that? Of course we don't. We would writhe in shame. That probably brings up a pit in your stomach, even the idea of that, Right? And so here we have these people, there's simple people, people that have decided to to follow Jesus, to love Jesus, and they're accepting anybody who's made the same decision. And not only are they accepting anybody who's made the decision, but they're ministering together with these people. So you have this group of people from all these different cultures, all these different places, all these different backgrounds, all these different mistakes. You know, Paul, remember, he's the guy who tortured people in the church, And and they're all there. And they're doing something. And this is, this is where I want to go next. It says here, that the, verse 2, while they were worshiping the Lord and fasting. So they're involved in a few different activities here. While they're worshiping the Lord and fasting. Now this, the word worshiping here is used two other times in the New Testament. The root word is used other places. But this exact word is used two other times in other, uh, in other places. It's used um, in Romans when Paul is writing to the Romans and he's saying, hey, make sure you guys collect money for when I come so I can bring it to the church. Uh, I believe it's in Jerusalem, if I remember correctly. But he, he says, and he calls it a service of giving. So the word worship here is the same word in Romans 15 that's translated as a service of giving. It's also used uh, to, tra- it's translated in Hebrews chapter 10 and verse 11 when it talks about the, the priests of the Old Covenant that the priests of the Old Covenant, that every day they had service before the Lord. Okay, So the word worship here is being translated in our English as worship, but the idea is like a, a devotion or a service that is, uh, in a sense, has um, sacrifice to it. N- not, not animal sacrifice, but that, that you are serving the Lord and valuing what He has and who He is. Does that make sense? So these people, uh, and I guess, you know, as I read it this time and I thought about it and prayed it through these last couple of weeks, I was, and in my mind, this was always like an event that occurred. In other words, like in my mind, I was like, oh yeah, there's this prayer meeting that goes on and all of a sudden the Spirit says, does this. But that's not, these are all in the present active, meaning that these people, they were all worshiping, mean worshiping and continuing to be in the mode of worship or service. Does that make sense? In other words, what's being portrayed here is that you have these people, and this was their lifestyle. This is who they are, who they, uh, what they do. This isn't a, the, the, what's point, being pointed out here, I don't believe, and, and you can argue, and, and I would be okay with that, is that this, it's not saying that this event happened where they got together, and then they were fasting for this event, and then they were serving at this, or worshiping at this one event, but as a matter of fact, a matter, a matter of habit, that's how they were living their lives. And this is really, I think, key 
to how we hear the Holy Spirit. In, in other words, there's, there's times where, uh, there's, I should say, there's opportunities and there's things that we can do, activities, that invite the Holy Spirit into our lives. Does that make sense? So these guys, in a sense, if you want to use modern church vernacular, they were plugged in. They were involved. They were being part of what the church was doing. Does that make sense? They were being part, and I don't even want to necessarily even narrow it down to like a church context, but more of a relational context with Jesus. They were doing the things that God had called them to do, and they were doing it in the present active, meaning all the time. It was, if you look up the present active, it's kind of funny, the, the, the verb tense. It's that an action is being done with no conceived idea that it will be ended. <laughs> That's what it means. They're just doing it, and they're continuing to do it, and they're going to continue to do it, and there's no end in sight of what they're doing. And this can be very different sometimes from how we approach trying to hear the Holy Spirit. Oftentimes we can approach the Holy Spirit and we have a, like a, a time to do it, and that's great. I'm not minimizing the time to do it. But we're saying, okay, today I'm going to take this time and I'm going to go and I'm going to hear the Holy Spirit. And, and here's the thing, I do not want to minimize that. Because having an appointed time in your life where you say, I'm going to go do this. I know in my own life personally, uh, I've gone up to Radar Hill before, brought some firewood and just lit a fire up there in, in a controlled environment. And just, you know, I'm not Antifa. I'm just kidding. But the, uh, you know, just lit a fire in a controlled environment and just, and just sat there and just prayed and brought my Bible and just like seeking the Lord. Like, what are we supposed to do as a church? And how, what about my own life? And, you know, what's going on here? And, and, there, and I've had times where they're very rich and I've had times where I'm like, that was a waste of firewood. <laughs> <laughs> Not really, but you know what I'm saying? Like, there's times where you go away and you're like, yeah, like I'm going to be the Johnny Karate of you know, the Holy Spirit power. And there's times where you go away and go, okay, well, the Lord heard my plight. Time to drive down the mountain. Time to go to work. Time to do what we need to do. So the, there's opportunity, and those opportunities are great, but instead of just having this specific opportunity, but having a lifestyle instead, having a life that says, I'm serving the Lord. Then when I wake up in the morning, I say, I'm serving the Lord this morning. I don't know what that means, but I, I, I know some that it means, right? I know that the whole law and the prophet hangs on this one thing, that I'll love the Lord my God and I'll love my neighbor as myself. I think that's one of the glories of 1 John, the fact that it just narrows every single thing down to the fact, do you love the person next to you? Do you treat them like your neighbor? Because if we're not doing that, like, there's nothing to move on to. There really isn't. If we're not loving the people around us, there's no next. There's no, where do I go from here? There's no, like, how do I rise in the ranks of... Jesus Christ's ladder, you know, that doesn't exist. If we haven't loved the brethren and we haven't loved our neighbor, then we're not even, we're not even step like one. That's what we're called to do, to love God, to serve God, and to love other people, right? So, but as a lifestyle, I wake up in the morning and I say, okay, I'm, I'm here to serve. I'm here to be a part of what God is doing. There's a fantastic verse in Colossians Colossians chapter 3, it makes it very practical. It's, again, it's one of those verses where it's the beginning of practicality from what um, Paul's writing about. But I think it can help us and kind of understand this idea of worshiping uh, on the regular or serving on the regular, having a, a, a lifestyle or thought process, of it, thought process of it. In Colossians chapter 3 and verse 1, he says this, If you then have been raised with the Christ... And that's Romans 6. If you've trusted in Jesus Christ, you have been raised with him. You're living the life that he created through the resurrection. 
If you have been raised with Christ, if you're a Christian, we're just going to say it that way. If you're a Christian, seek the things that are above where Christ is. See at the right hand of God. Set your mind on the things that are above, not on the things that are on the earth. So part of our, uh, the, the portion of our ministry and the portion of, the portion of our worshiping the Lord, how do we practically do that as a lifestyle? We constantly and consistently turn our eyes to heaven. So when all the craziness of this world comes crashing down on us, when all the rumors and all the dilemmas and all the fears and all the things, we go, no, 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 no. I don't have to give my thoughts to that. I don't have to entertain that. I'm going to turn to heaven. And it even tells us where Christ is sitting. I love that little detail, where Christ is sitting. It's not just generic heaven, right? Because if you think, I don't know what you think about when I think of heaven. I read Revelation, and I'm like, okay, so apparently Jesus is somewhere there, and there's like a heavenly Jerusalem, and there's a throne that like looks like a diamond and an emerald, and it's really shiny. There's some dudes bowing down there that represent the church. It's just nebulous to me, personally. Like it's just, I just think of like a lot of light, and everybody's happy. But I don't know what it's like. But he throws in for us, what do we think about? Where Christ is. He's the focal point of heaven. So when I think of heaven, it's not just like, it's going to be okay, little gipper. You can just think about heaven now. But it's the idea that Christ is up there. Because I don't know about you, but thinking about heaven when I'm down, it does nothing for me. I'm going to be honest with you guys. It's not like I'm having a tough day at the office or whatever it might be, and I go, well, someday there's going to be heaven, and then I feel better. Now, if that works for you, I'm not, that's great. But for me personally, I just think to myself, I'm here now. Someday I'll be there, and I look forward to that day. Probably not as much as I should, but I do. But you know what I need right now? I don't need to know, for me personally, I don't need to know right now that heaven is there. Oh, that's good. I need to know that Jesus is there. And that he's helping me here. And so we have this calling in Colossians where he's saying, look, if you're, a, if you're a Christian, think about that. It's not if you're an unbeliever. It's not if somebody, you're rejecting Jesus. If you have been raised with Christ, your calling is to look to heaven and not to the things of the earth. That our, that our eyes and our minds would be set on what Christ is doing. The fact that he is victorious, that he's working. Nothing that happens on the earth has any frame of reference as far as the victory of Jesus. And so when when we can realize that, yeah, we can say, this stinks what's going on down here. We don't really like it. But God and what he's doing. That we're not undone, that the, the church isn't hosed forever, you know, all, the, all the things that can come into our mind. But that God is working and doing great things. So part of that worshiping, part of that ministry, we can't minister in a, in a cherishing, worshipful way, in a way that values God, if we're consistently looking at the things of the earth. We cannot be involved and hear the voice of God, or it's very difficult when we're just consumed with the things that are on the earth because we're not even prepared to hear what he has for us. You know, and, and it's funny if you, uh, we won't turn there, but you flip back to Acts 13. But remember in the upper room discourse, when Jesus is speaking to the disciples, one of the things he says to them, he says, I have many things to say to you, but you cannot bear them right now. 
And so he says, I'm going to send the Holy Spirit, and he's going to tell you those things. You know, they, where they were at in their life, where they, how they thought the Messiah was going to work, how they thought he was going to take over, all the thought, he said, you can't really hear what I have to say to you right now. But after I die and I rise again from the dead, you'll see what I'm doing. Then you'll be able to bear what I have to say to you. You know, we can't bear what God has for us when we're obsessed with this, with this earth, when it, and it, when it occupies our thoughts. The second thing it says that they were doing, and this also is in the, uh, the present active, it says that they were fasting. And, you know, fasting, it's the same word pretty much everywhere in the New Testament where fasting is mentioned. And it's the idea of abstaining, specifically from food. Um, but in this, I'll, I'm going to be the first to uh, be honest with you, too. Well, I'm probably not the first to be honest. I'm going to be the first to say, I don't entirely understand fasting. Um, I understand that Jesus said, hey, when I'm gone, my servants will fast. Uh, I understand that uh, I've seen great things come out of fasting. Uh, when I think about fasting uh, on like a surface level, and I think in a wrong way, it just kind of, if I, my reactional thought to it is like, I'm as if I'm showing God I'm really serious. Like, I was praying for this, but now I'm not screwing around anymore, and I skipped Subway for this. So now I'm serious, God. So I expect some stuff to happen because I'm going to have a rumbly-tumbly in a couple hours and get, you know, hypoglycemic and have to deal with that and try to pretend to be nice when I'm going through this, all because I'm praying to you because you won't answer me, right? It's like this idea that, I'm really showing God how serious I am right now by not eating. So that, I'm saying that's a wrong way to think. And I'm not saying everybody who fasts thinks that way, okay? I'm not saying that at all. Uh, I, I, I'm, I wonder about fasting because fasting can kill some people, right? So should everybody fast? I don't think so. I don't think that you can come to the point where, uh, especially as like a hardcore diabetic, you'd be like, I'm just going to fast. And we'll see what happens in about three hours. You know, Make sure I don't take my insulin and uh, hopefully I'll be okay. You know, that's not... It's not real. So the, 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 the point of fasting, in my limited scope, what I, this is, it's a work in progress for me. And I've read a few books on it. In Isaiah 58, when, when God talks about fasting, he's kind of speaking against this hypocr- the hypocrisy that Israel's, they're fasting, they're doing all these things, but they don't actually trust him. And when he starts talking about what his fast is for, why God calls people to fast, he always says it's to, it's to liberate, it's to bring freedom. It's not for the purpose of just afflicting yourself, of being like, I'm really naughty, so I'm not going to eat, so God sees I'm serious. From what I can tell, and this is an opinion, so feel free to throw it away, the point of fasting is abstaining in that moment because there's a need that's greater than whatever it might be. Does that make sense? So in other words, when you read about, for example, Israel, or even in, in, in New Testament times, many, many, many of those people had an opportunity, right? Because you have to cook bread in a stone oven. And that takes time. I don't know how much time that takes, but it's got to take a while because you have to have flour. Maybe you have to grind your own flour. You have to do everything from scratch, put it in the stone oven, bake it, watch it, make sure the coals are working are right in the stone oven. Everything you have to do. So to literally fast in those days... You, you're making a decision. Say, well, I could spend a couple hours making this meal, but you know what? What's going on here, this is more important. And so I'm going to take this time, and instead of devoting it to that, I'm going to pray instead. This is, it's, I, I really want to call to the Lord. I think fasting is more of a response of, Lord, this is so important. I want to bring it to you in faith. And way less of a, I'm showing God just how serious I am. 
So what does that mean for our time today? Can I have a microwave burrito and then pray? I don't know. Sure, why not? I mean, you know, that's five minutes of my time. I don't know. But the point is that these people were willing to go without in order to make sure that what God has called them to do was being done. Does that make sense? And I think that's the core issue of fasting. Being willing to go without to ensure by prayer that what God is, called, what God is doing is getting done. Uh, to, that's, that's where I'm at on it. So I think that as we see what's happening here, it wasn't that these guys were just like, oh, we're so serious and we're just going to skip meals and now the Holy Spirit will speak to me. And much more, not that idea, but much more the idea that as a lifestyle, they were making sure that they never left seeking God undone. That it was a priority in their life and they were willing to abstain from other things to ensure that what God was doing was getting done. Does that make sense? And in that position of making a lifestyle out of worshiping God and serving Him and esteeming what He has for us, holy moly, it's 10 o'clock, and in the lifestyle of being willing to go without to ensure that it was accomplished, that that is the place that the Holy Spirit spoke to them. Really quick, two minutes. What keeps the Holy Spirit from speaking to us? I just made a list here. Often our emotion, when we don't deal with our emotions, extreme anger, extreme guilt, uh, extreme sadness. When we, for example, when we wallow in those things and the Holy Spirit is saying to you, I'm for you. And we go, no, you're not. The Holy Spirit says, I'm going to work. No, you're not. I'm really mad right now because this is going on. The Holy Spirit says, I'm going to fix it. No, you're not. We limit the Holy Spirit's influence in our life when we're given to our emotions. We limit the Holy Spirit when we're given to entertainment. How many of us, myself included, has the Lord spoke to my heart and been like, hey, you know, why don't you uh, put that down and uh, you know, spend some time with me? And I'm like, uh, I could do that, but I feel like watching Netflix is a lot more relaxing. And frankly, I don't want to stop doing that. Or whatever, I'm gardening, I'm doing this, I'm, I'm doing my thing. And the Lord's saying, hey, why don't you wake up and spend some time with me? And we say, no, no, I'm not into that. Constantly being entertained, constantly scrolling. Um, Dana turned me on to this uh, show called The Social Dilemma. Yeah, from Netflix. And it's, it's interesting because it's, a, it's basically a show that was, it's a documentary that interviews uh, a lot of the creators of most of our social media. And their testimony about what they've created is it's going to destroy the world. That's literally their testimony. We created something that destroys democracy and is going to destroy the world. And they point to the fact that like in 2011, when Facebook and all those went mobile on phones, that in females 10 to 14 years old, reports of depression and suicide rates went up 140%. Because they were, now not only do they have to, do they seek the, their, their close friends and family, but now they have thousands of kids they want to know, do they approve of my hair or my ears or whatever it might be. And so there's, this, there's, a, there's a radical destruction that's at hand. And sometimes the, the whole point of it is that they wrote an algorithm that caters to you. So that everything that you see, it even counts how many seconds you linger on something you don't click on. So if you're a dude with a wandering eye and those bikini ads come up, Facebook knows it. And so they send you more bikini ads. 
If you're, a, if you're a conspiracy theorist, it sends you more on conspiracy things. If you're an anti-vaxxer, it sends you every piece of information you can find on anti-vaxxing. If you're a pro-vaxxer, it does that. If you're a conspiracy person, it throws you every conspiracy it could ever find, and it gives it to you on the feed. It's there for one reason, because Facebook considers you and I to be the product that they're selling. They're selling our time to advertisers. So the longer they can keep you on it, the more that they can sell and charge for advertising. My point is this. Sometimes we don't hear, oh, I was wrong. It's like, okay, good. I was, we ordered a new clock. I, it hasn't gotten put up yet. So this 44, man, I don't have to get bifocals or something. But, so this, the, uh, but the point is this, that we can, if you're caught yourself in some, whether it's YouTube or Instagram or some sort of social media, and you just scroll and scroll and scroll. Well, you can know that it is designed to hold you there. That is the whole purpose of Facebook. Facebook doesn't give a flying hoot of whether you think your grandkids are kid or cute. They don't care. But they, all they're doing, their whole goal in life is to keep you on their app so that they can sell your time to advertisers. Now, personally, I was talking to Jim about this. I don't really care because I appreciate that they're showing me things that I want to see. <laughs> but we have to be able to turn it off. Entertainment can cost us hearing from the Holy Spirit. And if we're given to entertainment, if our eyes are on the things of this world, and the Spirit's calling to us, it can cost us. Now, am I saying, never use Facebook, never use... You? No, I'm not saying that. I'm saying know and be available for the Holy Spirit. Problems can rob us from hearing from the Holy Spirit. And this might flow into the emotion idea, but when we have a perceived problem with something going on in our lives, and we don't approach the problem in faith and saying, okay, Lord, how are you going to fix this because I can't? Instead we go, well, I'm done for because of this. And the Holy Spirit's saying, I want to work. And we're like, no, no, you can't. It can't be done. Peter's not at the gate. It's his twin angel. Even though I've been praying for this with my entire church, no, you can't fix this. Um, fear of offending, I think, can keep us from hearing from the Holy Spirit. Fear, fear of just stepping out and what He's called us to do. I think, personally, fear of losing our identity, who we are. How many times have we abstained or gone and done something, abstained from something or gone and done something because we felt like, if I don't do this, then who I am will be lost. I will be oppressed out of my own self. And we respond because of others, excuse me, impact in our lives. Even our own identity, trying to preserve it. Being overbooked, too busy. That can keep us from the Holy Spirit. <clears throat> I think sometimes in our, you, you see, um, sometimes we can feel like, especially in our society, we're bombarded by stimulus, that somehow busyness is godliness. That if I'm really busy and I'm doing all the stuff, that, that that's where I should be. Sometimes, you know, I know a wrestling match for a lot of parents, including us, can be sports. How much do we give to sports? How much do we give to church? How do we, you know, we do our time? Um, there's different things like that. To be, I'm not, am I saying don't do sports? No, I'm definitely not saying that. But I'm saying that we have to be those that are saying, Lord, okay, we want to give soccer to you. It's a great outreach. We get to talk to other parents. We get to be involved in this. Our kids get exercise. There's all these good things, right? But then all of a sudden it can be like, we didn't go to church for three months because we had this specific thing. 
And you have to decide what's okay for you. I'm not making a standard. But we can't be surprised if we skip godly input for months and months and months that all of a sudden life seems to dry up. It, there's, there's definitely a correlation and causation there. Um, preconceived ideas or opinions, things that we just already believe. You know, I was talking to uh, a person yesterday, and they said, I just don't believe that that, that, that particular sin could ever be forgiven. It, couldn't, I just, it, will, it cannot be forgiven. And I cannot forgive someone who ever does that. Here's the Holy Spirit, maybe wants to work, wants to move. But because of a preconceived idea or an opinion on something, the Holy Spirit is, boom, just stopped. So instead of inclusion and, and love and kindness and fruit, you have separation and death. So there are things that we can be involved in that can, in a sense, invite the Holy Spirit and open us up to what He wants to do in our lives. And we can be sensitive to Him. And there are things that we can be involved in that will shut Him out. And, that, and, and will um, minimize the kind of input we hear from the Holy Spirit. And that's not what we want to do either. Some, I'm just going to give some... I'm still perfecting the art of first service. I'm going to give some personal examples of how we can hear the Holy Spirit. Um, in your own time, if you want to look at 1 Kings 19, it's when Elijah, uh, he, the prophets of Baal are slain, and then he runs away. And the, the long and the short of it is it ends up where God does all these powerful things and reveals himself to, to Elijah. But then ultimately, it says that God wasn't in the wind, he wasn't in the earthquake, and he wasn't in the fire. But then he speaks to him in a whisper. And so a lot of times... The, the, the Holy Spirit comes to us and God speaks to us in a whisper. It's not about the big bang or this exciting thing that's going on. It's just that whisper and comfort. And for Elijah, it was a whisper of comfort. That he was not undone. That God was still working. That he had a ministry for him still to do and to go and to anoint someone else. I think that when we're worshiping and fasting in the context that we've mentioned, that when we're in the Word and we're seeking God, that's oftentimes where we hear from the Holy Spirit. Again, um, I've been kind of dabbling with this idea of making a little pamphlet for the church called Why Discipleship. As a Christian, why should I choose to be discipled? Because one of the primary uh, important things of being a Christian is knowing how to read the Word. I'm not saying be John Bunyan. Uh, I'm not saying be Walvrude. I'm saying just be able to read the Word for yourself and to consider it, right? That's all we're talking about here. And so one of the primary ways that we hear the Holy Spirit is being in the Word for our own selves. And I just, you know, I've all, I always say, don't ever be the hero of your own story. But in this case, I'm not going to make myself the hero, but I'm just going to share some examples of where the Lord's spoken to me in the Scripture. Because I can't really share examples of where God did that in other people's lives. Because it would be weird. Because it's not my own experience. But I remember... The verse that God gave me to come up here was Psalm 107, verse 23. And I'm not going to share the whole story. I don't have time. I was standing in the shower, getting ready in Warrington. I had turned down a bunch of jobs that were offered because they were pretty trash jobs compared to what I had in California. And the Lord's, this was a very singular time in my life. There's probably been twice this has ever happened. And the Lord literally, if you were to ask me, I would say it was like Jesus was like standing in the shower with me. 
because the Lord just like whispered into my heart this out of Psalm 107, verse 23. What I was doing when, when that happened is I was kind of mentally thinking about a Bible study I was going to do when I got home to California. And that verse just came into my heart. Those that go down to the sea in ships, those who do business in great waters, these do the works of the Lord and His wonders in the deep. And so for me personally, in that moment, I was rejecting low-paying jobs because I didn't want to have a low-paying job because I had a really nice job as a shop foreman at Honda. And the Lord spoke to me because we have been, Tam and I have been praying, Lord, we really want to see this amazing, miraculous Christianity. And he said, you don't want to give up anything. You're not, you want to stay in the shallow end, and yet you, you're claiming to want to see miracles. And he challenged me in that moment. If you're going to see miracles, you have to be in a place to be able to see them. Now, that was the word of the Lord to me. And it was something that, that met me deeply and actually moved me, and I quit an amazing job in California. And by the grace of God, I'll tell you why I quit the job. It's not because I'm a spiritual guy. It's because I realized that for me to not move up here would have been sin, and I didn't want God to jack up my life and have some sort of you know, Jonah experience. Not super spirituality on that one. In John 15, 16, I was in a living situation that was absolutely horrible. I was praying through it. I was, I was at the point where I really wanted to tell some of roommates off and just walk out as a believer in Jesus. And as I was reading in my devotions, the Lord spoke to me out of John 15, 16, where he says, you have not chosen me, but I've chosen you. And he says that I've chosen you so you could go and bear fruit and that your fruit should abide. And the, the idea there, it's not a direct quote, but the idea there, God spoke to my heart in that moment and said, look, man, you didn't choose what I have for you. I've chosen what I have for you. I've chosen you, and my goal is for you to bear fruit, and if you do this, you won't. And so I had a choice, right? I could go, well, I'm going to live a fruitless life now because I don't want to deal with these guys that I live with. Or I can say, okay, well, I'm going to have to wait and trust the Lord. Later on, when I moved, first moved here and our church in San Luis Obispo that we're going to had collapsed and really the ministry had collapsed, I watched the movie The Apostle with Robert Duvall. There's language in it, and he hits a dude with a bat, so you do with that what you will. But believe it or not, the movie The Apostle with Robert Duvall through the Holy Spirit met me miraculously because it's a movie about a dude who whacks his youth pastor with a bat and kills him. <laughs> he whacks his youth pastor with a bat and kills him because the youth pastor well, had been cheating with his wife, with the pastor's wife. And Robert Duvall plays the pastor. And he basically kills the guy, runs away, and goes and starts a church. And it's a very interesting movie because the people that they got to play stuff, these were, they were Pentecostal pastors that were preaching the word and all this. Anyway, in the movie, there's this whole revival happens. And it met me because I, was, I had gone that summer to a Bible school camp thing for three months where this guy went through the Bible and I was so blessed. And then it came out like a month after that that he had been basically sleeping with his secretaries, taking money, all these different things. And I was like, how? How can this guy have this double life and I'd be so blessed? And I watched the apostle and I was like, because the word is powerful. And, and when you share the word, it's just powerful. You can be a complete lout, but if you're just sharing the word with people, there's no Holy Spirit magic. The word is just powerful. Now, does our lifestyle affect things? Of course it does. But I can say from personal experience, I sat in the ministry of a dude who for 20 years was involved with adultery and these things, and he was blessing people left and right with the word. So you do with that what you will. 
but the Holy Spirit, because I was seeking Him. I was watching, it was not my greatest time, I was watching the Apostle. The Lord spoke to me through the Apostle. One last one in, in, when I moved up here. I moved up here, I was, the, I was the foreman of a Honda shop. I was in leadership at my church. Uh, just got married. All these great things were going for me. And in a sense, status. If I, can, I hate to use that word, because I, I don't think I esteemed it as status, but it was having an identity. That's probably a better way to put it. And I moved up here, and I was nobody again. And I started my job at Lums, and nobody cared who I was at Lums. And I was like, well, this is really weird not to be the foreman anymore, but to have my little cubby in the back with my lift and just do my job and keep my mouth shut. And then I started going to Coastline. It was such a blessing. I started going to Coastline and like so many new ideas because I was in a very limited ministry of what, it's a long story, so many new ideas of grace and kindness and worship and all, just, just boiling out. And I was just growing in all this, but I felt I, I had no ministry at all. I went from teach, teaching a midweek service, doing a campus Bible study, being a shop foreman, to coming up here and being an absolute nobody with no identity. And I remember that I got invited to this men's conference, and I was like, no, I'm not going to some." Tam was like, you should go. I was like, why? It'll just go up there, and it'll be like a bunch of funky man things and, you know, whatever, and then we'll, like, stick our sin on a cross and be like, meh. And I'm pretty cynical, all right? Forgive me for that. I'm, just, I'm not saying it was the right way to think. I'm saying that's how I was thinking. And, 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 I, and I just finally, I just was like, so I, I asked this guy at work, Zach Witsit, because I thought he'll surely say no. Because I told Tam, I'll go, I'll go if Zach will go with me. So I go to Zach at work. I'm like, hey, do you want to go with me? He's like, yeah, I'm in. I'm like, no, what are you doing? Do you know what you've done? You know. So I go, and it's so funny, because I go to this men's conference, and my objection was like, what's the point of going? I'm not going to change. I go, to one, I go to the first meeting. The first title is like, can one weekend change you? And I was like, oh, you're here, Lord. This is amazing. And then for the rest of the weekend, got absolutely nothing and went home just absolutely discouraged. Although I did see, the, for the first time ever, a double rainbow out on the water. So that was cool. But so that Monday, I get home and I read in my devotions in Luke chapter 10 where Jesus says, don't rejoice that the demons are subject to you, but rejoice that your name is written in the book of heaven. And it was just a Holy Spirit moment where six months of trial and aimlessness and wonder were all fulfilled in a moment. And it was that you're finding your joy in the wrong place, James. It changed my life. So there's being in the Word, understanding the Word, positioning yourself in a lifestyle of seeking God. It's how the Holy Spirit reveals Himself to us. So as Christians, as followers of Jesus, let's be followers of Jesus. Let's pray. Father, thank you for your kindness and your grace and, Lord, for being merciful to us. Lord, we pray that you would speak to our hearts. We pray that we'd be those that are allowing you to speak to our hearts. We pray for changed lives, for lives of great uh, importance, for lives of great gravity to our, uh, uh, the people around us, our church, our community, our families. And Lord, that you'd be glorified in all of that. And we thank you in Jesus' name. Amen. amen. God bless you guys.